Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the biggest political stories this week that we're waiting for was the sentencing of longtime Trump ally Roger Stone. He was sentenced to 14 months in prison for crimes that included obstruction of justice, lying to Congress, and witness tampering. But the big question that everybody else is waiting for is whether he will serve that time at all. Looming over this whole case is whether the president will get involved and give him a pardon. He already had a bunch of high-profile pardons and commutations earlier in the week, and the big question was whether he would do the same for his friend Roger Stone. At an event after the sentencing, President Trump did say that Roger Stone, quote, has a very good chance of exoneration, but he did say that he would let the process play out. There's still time before Roger Stone would have to report to prison. For more on this story, we spoke to Ursula Perano. She's a reporter at Axios. So he was sentenced, as you said, 40 months, which is significantly shorter than the seven to nine years originally suggested by prosecutors who had tried Stone's case. But as we know, DOJ stepped in, said they thought that sentence was too harsh. And moreover, the president has not been shy about chiming in, saying he thought the original sentencing recommendation of seven to nine years was horrifying or horrible and not necessarily weighing out a pardon for Stone. He hasn't attached himself to it completely. And he's sort of weighing the idea, you know, it's an election year. That would be a big commitment from the president to pardon his associate, Roger Stone. But the big looming question in this situation, if that pardon is coming. What happened with Judge Amy Berman Jackson? There was some interesting moments. The new lead prosecutor there, you know, had to talk about the new sentencing guidelines. And it was this weird mishmash of, well, you know, still arguing a lot of the same principles that were in the original sentencing guidelines. He didn't say give a time that they recommend. The judge says the truth still matters and had some harsh words there. What happened with the judge? So Judge Amy Berman Jackson, she was sort of countering this narrative from people backing Stone that Stone was being prosecuted for fighting for the president. The judge countered that he was not prosecuted for sticking up for Trump. He was prosecuted for covering up for the president. That was her argument. And so she's kind of not playing into the politics of it all. She's trying to stick to what was brought forth in the Mueller investigation, the actions that Stone took when trying to pursue information about the Hillary Clinton WikiLeaks emails in 2016. She's not having it. She cut to the chase and said, this is not about Trump. This is about the actions that Stone took on behalf of Trump. Yeah, she said the truth still matters and that this poses a threat to the very foundation of this democracy. Let's talk a little bit about Attorney General William Barr, because he got roped into all of this when the mess was going on with the old sentencing guidelines and the new revised version of it. Attorney General Bill Barr did an interview with ABC News, said that when the president tweets about the Department of Justice and what they're doing, it makes it impossible for him to do his job. There's been all sorts of stuff going on with Bill Barr, but it raises a lot of questions about what's going on there in the Department of Justice in the background. Really what that was, was DOJ has maintained through all of this that their decision to intervene in the Stone sentencing was independent of influence from the White House. But when Trump is tweeting along, it makes it really hard to sell that. 
So Barr told ABC News in that interview that he wasn't going to be bullied, that this was his decision, and that these tweets from the president chiming in make it difficult for him to do his job. And there was reporting in the days that followed that Barr was considering resigning over the situation because he simply felt he couldn't run DOJ in a way that fit what he was looking for. Yeah, I think a spokesperson for Barr said that's not the case, but that's kind of the boilerplate. That's what we always hear after somebody says something or rumors like that pop up. The president, for his part, did respond to this already. He was at an event in Nevada and he said he wasn't going to do anything just yet, but he says that Roger Stone has a very good chance of exoneration. That was essentially his quote that he wanted to let it play out, but that there's this chance that he believes Roger Stone could be exonerated. So it'll be interesting seeing what happens in the next few days. But it does come at an interesting time, given the context of Trump pardoning multiple people earlier this week, former Illinois governor, former NYPD commissioner, a former NFL owner. He's been very bold this week, showing he's not afraid to offer clemency and that if he doesn't give Stone clemency, it's not because he's afraid to. I guess politically smart for the president, let it play out. Roger Stone, I guess, has another appeal or wants to get this tried again. So that process has to work itself out before he actually has to report to prison. So on the president's part, it's smart to finish letting it play out, let him go to jail for a few days or something before he takes any action, maybe even after the election, possibly, whether he wins or loses. So on that part, there's time left for the president to take action. This is not imminent. This is not going to be a deciding factor for voters in November. Did Trump pardon Roger Stone or not? This is something he can wait out. You know, we have reporting that Trump's advisors want him to wait until after the election to not make this a forefront issue just right now. Ursula Pirano, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, have a good one. One of the other top political stories that happened during the week was the Democratic debate in Nevada. It would be the first time that former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg would be on the debate stage with the other Democrats running for the nomination, and there were fireworks. As the newcomer, Michael Bloomberg took the majority of the heat from the other candidates, especially Senator Elizabeth Warren. He had to feel criticism over his support for stop and frisk, his taxes and why he hasn't released them, sexist comments he might have made at the workplace, and even non-disclosure agreements that he had arranged with some women. He particularly had a bad answer on that one. For more on this whole story, we spoke to Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. It was his first time that he was on stage, and I think that certainly showed, to put it gently, everyone took swings at him at, you know, Elizabeth Warren most prominently, but even Joe Biden got in and took some shots at Bloomberg. Bernie Sanders saw him, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, everyone on stage took some chances, take a swing at him, and he really never had a solid response to any of it. The one that was most surprising to me was the NDA. You have to have known that question was coming and fumbled his way through that of saying he won't release these women from the NDAs. Didn't particularly give good reason why. And like Warren just really went to town for it with him on that. Mike Bloomberg's response there was, quote, maybe they didn't like a joke I told. And then the other quote that he said that we did these NDAs because the NDAs were made consensually. And it's like, this is not the language that you use when you're talking about sexist comments and non-disclosure agreements. Yeah, I, I totally agree. They were just horrible answers. And you're right. Even his campaign had said that they did prep. They did do a lot of debate prep and were ready for these types of answers. But it didn't seem like Mike Bloomberg was ready for any of that. I think his campaign manager after that said, Mike's got to get his legs under him. He hasn't had a debate 
since he sought his third term for mayor in 2009. And I think it totally showed. Like they said that, you know, oh, Bloomberg got his legs under him after 45 minutes. Not entirely sure how true that is. I don't know if he looked better in the latter hour and 15 than the first 45. But the benefit, I guess, to the other five candidates on stage, they had eight debates previously to kind of work out the kinks, get all this going. And it looks like last night's debate was actually the most viewed of the cycle yet. I think I saw some numbers that put it at like 19 million people watched it on television. That's a lot of people who saw this debate and saw Mike Bloomberg kind of getting beaten up for two hours. Where does this put Mike Bloomberg now? Because he's obviously spending millions and millions of dollars on advertising. I think it's like $409 million from last November to January, something like that. He still has the next debate in South Carolina. That's going to be on Tuesday, February 25th. It kind of seems like this first debate, he obviously had to take all the punches. And maybe in the next one, if he stands strong, he can continue in the race. We're still a while away from anyone voting for Mike Bloomberg, that's for sure, because he's skipping out in Nevada, and he's skipping out in South Carolina. He's not on the ballot. He's not competing. The Super Tuesday is until March 3rd. Can what happened on stage really be counteracted by that massive amount of ad spending? You know, we've seen the Bloomberg campaign has spent over $400 million in totalitarian but staff and rent and all that fun stuff through from the launch of this campaign through January 31st. That is just an absolute absurd amount of money. Advertising analytics, which is a term that tracks advertising, said that through the beginning of this week, he spent about $360 million on traditional advertising. That's media, that's TV and radio. And that is the most any presidential campaign has ever spent, including general election campaigns. So, you know, there's one bad night or two bad nights on the debate stage overwhelm the millions and millions and tens and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of advertising that voters are seeing. I guess we'll find out. This is like a pure political science experiment almost, is how much to add matter. We'll find out with Bloomberg, apparently. Elizabeth Warren had a really good night. She was attacking Bloomberg. She was attacking everybody, sometimes all at once in one of her responses. She's constantly been described as one of the best debaters there on the stage, but it doesn't always translate into the polls. She's usually trailing Bernie Sanders, who's the polling leader right now. He came out of this unscathed. There was attacks pointed at him, but it seemed like Bloomberg was the big distraction. So Bernie Sanders comes out still on top, it seems like. It's interesting, right? It's really the only one on stage who kind of understands that Bernie Sanders is probably the closest thing the race has to a trial, and it was Pete Buttigieg. Senator Warren had a great night. It was her most fiery debate yet. She was ready to fight with just about anyone. She was sharp. She was ready to go after the mayor, Bloomberg, quite a lot. But the things that come to mind is a lot of people have already voted in Nevada, the next state up, 74,000 or about 75,000 people voted early there, and that's just about as many people who voted early this go-around who voted in the, the entire cycle the entire caucus in 2016. So a lot of people voted cast their ballot. Super Tuesday states like California, millions of people have already gotten their ballots in the mail, could have sent them back already. It remains to be seen how much this will move Senator Warren's spot in the polls and in the, when people actually vote, but she had a strong night. One of the other interesting dynamics they played out was Senator Amy Klobuchar and uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. They were going at it pretty hard. It didn't really seem like it might have paid off for Pete Buttigieg. I thought he kind of came off very abrasive. But, you know, they're fighting for the middle, for that moderate lane. Now that Joe Biden seems to have kind of faded off a little bit, Pete Buttigieg really kept making the case, you know, you can't be a polarizing figure like Bernie Sanders and then taking down Amy Klobuchar. I thought she held her own, but really for the both of them, it seemed like it got pretty personal. One of my colleagues wrote a story about how the two of them very obviously don't like each other. It felt like at times that they just spent the night memorizing Apple and the other person. But, you know, Buttigieg and Klobuchar both have the same challenge going forward is how do voters of color, how do non-white voters respond to them? You know, the first two states where they both performed fairly well, Iowa and New Hampshire, 
overwhelmingly white voters. That's not the case in Nevada, not the case in South Carolina, and certainly not the case of the Democratic electorate at large when you get a larger swath of states like Super Tuesday. How do voters of color respond to them? First, going to be to watch, and we'll see. We'll get that early test on Saturday. And how much can they really change their fortune? Because despite the fact that they did well in those first two early states, either of them are in the top three or the top four in national polling. And national polling is not worth everything because there is no such thing as a national primary. But in the absence of polling in a lot of these Super Tuesday states, you can maybe take some clues to national polling. You know, they need to change something, starting with Nevada, starting with South Carolina, and then going into Super Tuesday to expand their support. Zach Montalaro, campaign reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. One of the tech stories we covered this week was about a facial recognition app called Clearview AI, which law enforcement agencies across the country are using to identify suspects or victims. The crazy part about how this app works, though, is that it scrubs the Internet and sites like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and Venmo for pictures that the app can then use to match against photos submitted to the app. These are all publicly submitted photos in Florida. The Tampa Bay Times has found about a dozen police departments that have tried out or bought access to this facial recognition system. And with any new system, there's questions about privacy and accuracy. For more on how this whole system works and what it costs for these departments to use, we spoke to Milena Carollo. She's a reporter with the Tampa Bay Times. They're a facial recognition company. Um, their algorithm, you input a photo and it matches it against its database of photos that it pulls from public images across the Internet. Um, it works differently than traditional um, facial recognition algorithms do. Typically, uh, police run their own database and it's a database of uh, photos like mugshots or uh, license photos. Um, but Clearview is different because it pulls from around the Internet. Um, so you're not limited to whatever the police database is. You're able to pull from uh, anywhere in the country and potentially identify people in, in real time and then against the, the database that they have uh, of the photos. We haven't yet seen a company that pulls from um, social media and applies a facial recognition algorithm to them. Um, and people, uh, Clearview says that it's more, much more accurate than any other company out there um, which potentially means that uh, police are able to identify anybody in real time from it. Right now, Clearview is only giving access to law enforcement officials. I mean, it's not like available for anybody to use, right? Um, right now, their website says that they only do uh, law enforcement. Yeah. And then so there at the Tampa Bay Times, you guys found out that there was about a dozen Florida law enforcement agencies who have either tried out or bought access to this facial recognition system. We found that 13 uh, Florida law enforcement agencies uh, tried a free trial of it, uh, four signed contracts, and a fifth is about to sign a contract for the service. And, and what, have the, what have they said about uh, either its effectiveness or how well they like the interface? What, what are the reactions to it? Yeah, so we've got uh, mixed responses from many of the agencies that we've talked to did like it. There's a, the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office here runs their own facial recognition database. Um, and the sheriff said that uh, what Clearview does far surpasses what they're able to do um, in their capabilities. Um, some really like it because they say that it's been able to help them identify suspects, um, especially in cases like shoplifting. Um, in one case, the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office said that they were able to use it to identify somebody um, who was suspected of stealing a vehicle. 
Um, but there's been there was also a couple of police uh, agencies that said that it didn't quite meet their standards or some of the privacy concerns that were raised about the program uh, were enough that they were considering whether or not it would be appropriate to use it. Um, so it was a little bit of a mixed response. Uh, Clearview, for their part, says that they've had a lot of success in helping with theft, bank fraud, child exploitation cases, and, and a bunch of other things. Let's talk about the privacy issue, because I know that always comes up really in any type of story dealing with facial recognition. What are mm-hmm. the concerns there and how have police responded to that? So the concern with um, there's a, several privacy and civil, civil liberties concerns that come with facial recognition. Um, the one, a lot of times algorithms are treated as if they're foolproof, um, but they're not. And they have uh, they're sometimes that they match people falsely or they aren't able to identify um uh, groups of people that historically they've had more difficulty identifying um, anybody of color um, than somebody with lighter skin. Um, so some of the issues are whether or not the algorithm could uh, falsely identify someone. So it's important to have make sure that those algorithms are sort of vetted for accuracy. Something that's a particular issue with privacy with uh, Clearview is that the photos that it's scraping from, it's not uh, coming from a vetted data of like mug shots where the police or government has verified the person in them. Um, we're, you're not actually 100% sure that the person who is being scraped from social media is the person that you're looking for. Um, and with social media pictures, there's a whole lot of information that can pull together that's very sensitive, like your social connections, um, anywhere maybe that you've checked in on your profile, your birthday, your family. Um, so it comes with a whole lot of extra information that you wouldn't necessarily get with a mugshot or with, um, or with a driver's license photo. How much are subscriptions or access to this costing? I've seen things like ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, so the the trials, I think we think the trials are free, um, but the contracts we've seen um, are about ten thousand. We've seen fifteen thousand, five thousand, ten thousand. Um, so between like five thousand and ten, fifteen thousand, and those are for between you know six to fifteen licenses. So that's like the number of users who are allowed to use Clearview. Right. One of the police departments actually let you guys see how it works in real time, and you were able to upload a picture of a fellow reporter. And how did that all work out? Yeah, so uh, my coworker Allison Ross, um, uh, we provided her picture, and they ran it through the system. Um, and they pulled, I think, about thirty images back from um, from around online. Most of them were from. Uh, either social media or from pictures of her that had appeared in publications that she's written for. Um, and a couple of them were from uh, some friends' social media accounts as well. And uh, the agency also said that they found uh, her wedding and bachelorette party pictures. Oh, wow. Um, so was, and they were they were accurate, right? There were, you didn't notice any ones that were out of place, maybe? No, we all, all the ones that we were able to see, we confirmed were her. Wow, that's so and interesting. One of them was yeah, one of them was from like a profile shot of her too, so they weren't all exactly like straight on. Well, the conversation about Clearview AI is only going to intensify as we're finding out more and more law enforcement agencies are trying it out or actually buying the subscriptions. And and as you mentioned, you know, the, the conversation around privacy always uh, comes with discussions like this. So we'll, we'll have to keep monitoring whatever happens with this. Milena Carollo, reporter for the Tampa Bay Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.